my name is Linda. I'm here today to uh, share my story, my personal history with mental illness, my struggles with addiction, and uh, my experience with homelessness. Initially, I was raised in an alcoholic home where the patriarchal father ruled. Um, my father was a self-admitted alcoholic. Uh, he went in and out of treatment centers, and eventually he did get sober. He died sober. That was through Alcoholics Anonymous that he did eventually stay sober. My mother was a, a despondent, codependent woman. She was heavily into her own addiction, and she was actually in the detox before I was to, to dry out, which wasn't successful with her. My home life as a child was confusing, it was lonely, and for me it was overall torture to endure as a child. Linda will continue to share her story with us throughout this episode. We want to take this time to acknowledge her courage in sharing her story. We met Linda through an initiative called Voices in the Street from the Working for Change organization. In today's episode, we want to shed light on the experiences of some of our society's most vulnerable individuals those who are homeless or vulnerably housed, and to help dispel the stigma and discrimination that still remains. As part of this important discussion, we will be talking about difficult topics such as mental illness, substance use, and suicide. And in recognizing that this may be a source of struggle for some individuals, we advise you to listen with caution. To better understand structural vulnerabilities like homelessness and poverty, it's important to be aware of the major role of social inequities on health childhood trauma, mental illness, inadequate housing, and social isolation. These all significantly intersect and impact health, health care, and access to equitable care. We hope that this episode inspires you to pause, listen, and recognize a person's experiences and circumstances, and to suspend judgment in doing so. We will hear from different guests who will share their own stories, perspectives, and experiences with us. This is Zainab. This is Aaron. And this is Jillian. Welcome to episode 69 of Raw Talk. At 12, I felt the madness at home was too great, and that was my first of many suicide attempts. I felt scared, and I felt lonely within the confines of my own home, and I felt there was no escape. For me, I just wanted to go to sleep and and never wake up is what I had felt. So what I did is I gathered up all my mother's pills and my grandparents' pills and took them one afternoon. And I was found, I was told by my parents in my bed, comatose. I just remember waking up in the hospital and I just remember seeing bright lights and they were just sticking an instrument down my throat and there was nurses and doctors around and no one was saying anything. It was all very quiet. But I was I just remember being in a lot of distress. I was made then to see a psychiatrist at that point. It was a male psychiatrist. I remember my first visit with him is I, I sat in the room with him and all I did is I, I looked at the floor and I would not talk to this man. There was absolutely no way. And what I had in my mind is in the alcoholic home, there's this rule that you don't talk about things going on outside the family. And I maintained this rule for my family so I would not talk about anything that was going on. Uh, nevertheless, I, I didn't trust psychiatrists and I, I didn't trust institutions, but yet they would play a major part in my life with uh, numerous suicide attempts and many overdoses. The mistrust of healthcare providers, of the healthcare system, and of societal structures at large is an experience that many people with structural vulnerabilities share, including Linda. We spoke with Dr. Alyssa Tedesco, a frontline worker and palliative care physician caring for people experiencing homelessness in Toronto. She tells us why a trauma-informed approach to care is crucial in practice. The people that we work with, in large part, have experienced trauma, often numerous traumas throughout their life. And that experience of trauma and the ways that our structures have been violent towards them have played into why they are where they are now, which is oftentimes with advanced illness, coping with a number of negative impacts of the social determinants of health. And so for us, this is something that we see commonly in our population. We see because of this history of trauma, they often mistrust 
healthcare systems and healthcare providers, which is often very well founded based on their previous experiences. As their care team, we do our best to acknowledge how prevalent this is in the population that we serve and do our best to work on building trust with them, acknowledging that they've had these previous negative experiences and doing our best to ask for permission and take their guidance and meet their agendas as we care for them. Let's continue to hear Linda's story. At 25, I became a single parent. I had a pregnancy that was un planned and it was not desired. I felt the stigma of society's unwed mother. I felt that then, and it was a role as a woman, I felt like I could never escape that role. I was an unwed mother. During this difficult period, Linda still managed to graduate from college and receive a diploma as a registered nurse. She began to work in the healthcare system, but as a single parent, she struggled to maintain an incredibly busy work schedule and find childcare at the same time. At that time, my disease uh, of alcoholism and drug addiction was also growing rapidly. I was drinking heavily on weekends. I was shooting up IV morphine daily, and I was stealing uh, medications from the hospital. My addiction and mental health issues were now affecting me really in all areas of my life, and I was totally unable to function as a parent and as a staff member in the hospital. That was the first time that I I bottomed out and I did go to treatment. I went to a treatment center in the States at that time and I did stay sober for, for 10 years. During those 10 years, Linda went back to school, took parenting classes and accomplished many things. It was also when she had her second child, whose father eventually became abusive. And it was at this point that she ended the relationship. At this time, Oppression faced me once again as now I was a single parent of two children with two different fathers. I'd gone to living on ODSP because I had two children. I wasn't able to work. And I lived on ODSP and I was also living in Ontario housing. I felt I was at the bottom of a power structure of society. At that time, I felt shame, hurt. I felt lonely and I felt remorse for what I had done. As a person, I felt I was a bad person. Although Linda stayed sober for 10 years, she started to use again and her drug addiction gradually worsened. My life again had become pure madness. I had a history of childhood trauma, physical abuse and addictions, and I realized that it had come full circle. And I kind of stood at the center of this circle and I was dead inside. And I really didn't know what had happened to me as a woman and as a human being. I eventually lost custody of my son to Children's Aid. He eventually became a ward of the Crown. I lost custody of my daughter to my parents. And what I had done is I succumbed to my lonely, shameful, and terrifying existence. I was doing self-destructive behaviors in all areas of my life. During the last year, my substance abuse had turned to crack. I was a daily crack user. And I also was drinking three bottles of rubbing alcohol a day. And I worked the streets during the day and at night to support my habit. I felt my mind was lost. I had repeated hospital admissions of rubbing alcohol poisoning over and over and over during that last year. I lost my apartment due to my drug addiction and I moved into a room in a, in a house, and I had just a small room. And when my disease was at its worst, I got evicted from that home due to my alcoholism, and then I became homeless. I entered the shelter system. At that time, I felt insane, I felt deeply depressed, and I felt hopeless. The shelter was run actually by a really caring staff, but they were on overload. And what would happen is you would get psychotic patients that would have psychotic episodes, and or you get violent patients, and then the staff would have to to run and service these people, and the rest of the, the house would just have to sit by the sides and watch what was going on, and we were told usually to go to our rooms. Consider this. Over 250,000 unique Canadians experience homelessness each year. 
For every one person in a shelter, there are 23 others that we don't see who are on the verge of homelessness. In fact, one in five, one in five Canadian households experience housing vulnerability each year. That was Dr. Nahid Dasani giving his TEDx talk titled, What's a Life Worth? The link to his full talk can be found in our show notes. He is a palliative care physician at Inner City Health Associates and William Osler Health System, providing care for the homeless and vulnerably housed. But what is the connection between homelessness and health? Compared to the general population, the homeless are 28 times more likely to have hepatitis C virus five times more likely to have heart disease, four times more likely to have cancer. Oh, and remember the 23 others we don't see but on the verge of homelessness? Well, their health is just as bad. Stunned by this data, I couldn't stop there. I wanted to know, how do the homeless die? Where do the homeless die? I was shocked by what I learned. The average life expectancy of the homeless, 34 to 47 years. The average Canadian, 77 to 82. The homeless die at a rate that is 2.3 to four times more than the general population. And while surveys show that most people want to die at home, but only a fraction do, the data shows that this is so much worse for the homeless dying in emergency rooms and hospitals. And then, in 2014, a report out of British Columbia confirmed the fact That homelessness cuts a person's lifespan by 50%. 50%. As a palliative care doctor who works in a hospital setting every day, I get the sense that I see people all the time with life-limiting illnesses like heart failure, liver disease, and cancer, but would be hard-pressed to name a diagnosis that predictably cuts a person's lifespan by 50%. So it got me thinking, isn't homelessness a life-limiting disease? I mean, considering the strength of the data, isn't homelessness a terminal diagnosis? It all comes down to a few crucial questions. What is a life worth? How do we value dignity at the end of life? Is it the same for everyone? Dr. Dasani is the founder and lead physician of a program called PEACH, or Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless, fostered by Inner City Health Associates. PEACH provides care for individuals that are homeless or who are vulnerably housed and who have palliative care needs. Dr. Tedesco, who we heard from earlier, also works as a palliative care physician for PEACH, which is truly a unique and innovative program and was the first of its kind in Canada. We see individuals with life-limiting illness wherever they're at. So whether that be, you know, in the street, in a shelter, in whatever housing that they do have, or whosoever couch that they might be living on. So Peach started about five years ago, just had his five-year anniversary, and I wasn't there from the very beginning, but have been involved in some capacity for the last four years. And it started under the leadership of Dr. Nahid Dastani, who's still involved in the program. And what he saw during his training was that there was this population who was really being excluded from mainstream palliative care, whose needs weren't being met. And in large part, those were individuals who were homeless and vulnerably housed. The full-time staff that we have is Sasha Hill, who is our nurse and peach coordinator, and she does tons of the work for Peach. So um, she's there on the front lines every day being the first point of contact for a lot of our clients. Um, She most recently, you know, had a bunch of donated equipment and she was on riding on the TTC with a commode for a patient. She helps navigate their care, oftentimes accompanies them to appointments, tries to address the social determinants of health, their income, their transportation. And she's, I think, one of the strongest parts of our program and what really makes it us different from a lot of other, you know, palliative care services who don't necessarily have that sort of care navigation uh, that a lot of our clients really need to navigate the healthcare system. So we also have a very dedicated and wonderful palliative care coordinator who coordinates a number of these services that our clients need and often goes above and beyond her role to make sure that our clients get equitable services. There's also um, the nurses and the PSWs who care for our clients. So it's, it's far beyond just nurses and doctors, but really the communities that support these individuals. A lot of the people who work 
in some of the, the shelters and supportive housing units are very instrumental in making sure that those clients get to stay where they want to for the end of their life. And they often as well go above and beyond their roles to ensure that those individuals get their last wishes and die with dignity in a way that they would have wanted. And so it's really a community of people who are caring for clients within Peach beyond just the kind of the frontline clinical team. We asked Dr. Tedesco to walk us through how Peach works. We're a bit different in Peach from mainstream palliative care services in that we accept referrals from anyone. So that could be a friend, a family member, a shelter worker, a social worker, a physician. Um, And so in that way, we try to be more accessible. And so oftentimes we'll get a referral with what limited information that they do have. But these people, you know, they're worried about them. They think they might be dying and they think they might benefit from having a team that can really provide trauma-informed approach that provides comprehensive palliative care. And so we'll get the referral sometimes formally or informally, and then we do our best to meet the patient where they're at. So sometimes it's finding them in a park where they might frequent, it might be meeting them in the hospital before they're discharged, or it might be in the shelter where they're living or in their own home. Since Peach began, there have been a number of other similar programs that have launched across Canada and in the United States. Their approach and model of care have also inspired the development of Journey Home Hospice, which opened in May of 2018. It is Toronto's first hospice dedicated to providing end-of-life care for the homeless. Journey Home Hospice is a joint partnership between Hospice Toronto, St. Elizabeth Foundation, and Inner City Health Associates. We asked Dr. Tedesco what challenges she faces as a physician working so closely with people facing structural vulnerabilities at the end of life. I think just the frustration that you get with our health and social service systems not being able to meet their needs. So we all work within these systems that we know oppress people. Um, And so participating in those systems and not being able to provide the services and the care that you'd like to is very frustrating from a palliative care perspective. A lot of people want to die in the place where they live and where the people who they care about are around them. And, you know, our government is only able to provide so much care. Community resources and community agencies are often at a maximum. You can't get people to appointments when you want to. You know, other services don't always do a great job of collaborating with the community and the people that work with them in the community to kind of get them safely home and to provide a a comprehensive plan that actually would work for that patient. And so I could go on a long time about all the ways that our healthcare systems and social service systems fail people, but working in those confines is definitely frustrating, just as the person who's providing care. And I'm not even the person who, you know, is dealing with that myself. I'd say some other issues is just like the stigma that our patients face. So, you know, from a palliative care perspective, a lot of them are excluded from mainstream palliative care services. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, behavior. They're labeled as having behaviors. um, And that might be, you know, from their mental health disorder or from their substance use disorders. And because of that, they're excluded. They're deemed high risk. Um, And often that risk is very individual and sometimes not based on the person in front of you and it can be oftentimes based in stigma and so that's very frustrating to try to you know there are services there and then you try to advocate for your patients and sometimes they're just not the appropriate services they don't use harm reduction um, they don't use a trauma-informed approach so finding them appropriate services can be a challenge as well too. The challenges of finding appropriate services and the coordination and continuation of care that Dr. Tedesco highlights is certainly one that resonated with Linda's story. After she first entered the shelter system, she describes her challenges in getting the help that she needed to find appropriate and long-term housing. In the first shelter she lived in, she was given a shared small room with two sets of bunk beds with a serious bed bug infestation. Like I stayed at the, that shelter for a month and uh, I was still using drugs. I was still drinking my rubbing alcohol and doing the crack. And I did have a therapist I was seeing on the side and we had decided it was time for me to go to treatment again. So I did. I went down to Jean Tweed in Toronto for drug and alcohol abuse. They didn't know what to do with me after I graduated because I was homeless. And I wasn't able to go back to the shelter I was in. So they put me back in the detox. So I sat back in the detox and waited. Uh, What I was told to do is find shelter. They don't have people that look for housing for you. You have to look for housing for yourself. So I was told to find some kind of sober living, maybe, that would be appropriate for me. And I did. It took me a while. It took me a couple weeks. From the detox, Linda went to a sober living house, which had nine women living in it who were all newly or recently sober. 
Although the women were looked after for their needs, it was ultimately up to themselves to look for further housing, since they were only given nine months to live there. She finally found another sober living house for a month, and from there, she found Harbor Light, another sober living house run by the Salvation Army. It's very accommodating, and they do have counselors there to help you, but they don't provide for long-term housing. They have no one on staff that, that's there to help you for long-term housing. It's just it, you're in transition, so you're kind of there not knowing what's going to happen to you, always thinking, I'm going to end up on the streets one of these days. And you, there you have 11 months to live, and I stayed there for seven months, and I was looking for housing while at Harbor Light, and I found the housing workers around the city. I had gone, and it was a, a relentless search looking for housing. There was one housing place I went to, and I actually had to beg the lady to do something. I, I said, will you please look up something for me? Like, I'm, I'm going to be homeless, like on the street in a couple of months, and I need you to help me. And uh, she finally agreed to, to one spot, but she didn't want to do any more. But I did find Habitat for Humanity. They phoned and they had um, a spot at a rooming house, which I would share a room with somebody. And the rooming house is, is for women with mental illnesses, was how it was laid out to me. And I do have mental illness, so I know I qualified to be there. Because at the end uh, of Harbor Light, I was getting really scared, and I was always living in fear. And actually what I did do is I did obtain a sleeping bag, and I did get prepared. I got supplies to be ready to live on this street because I thought that's where I, I was going to end up. I just thought I either take this rooming house or I'm going to the streets, so I, I might as well get ready. And I do feel that when I was looking for housing, I got this label as homeless on me. And uh, right away, I, I got categorized as there was something wrong with me as a person. And then when I told them I was an addict, it was like, then I became a bad person. And that I was homeless. I thought they felt as though I deserved to be. This was something I had done to myself. It was the feeling that I always got. And I found it was a real dangerous combination for me to be stuck in. I felt I carried society's anger, shame, and fear. And I challenged their perception of a homeless person, especially when seeking services that I deserve as a human being. It's important to acknowledge that homelessness isn't simply like a lack of a home. I once heard it described by someone as a symptom, and I think I really like that definition. It's a symptom of unhealthy public policy, of inadequate social security systems, of inaffordable housing, of colonization, racialization. And so when we're caring for people under the PEACH team, we don't just see people who are homeless, but we see people that suffer all of these other structural vulnerabilities that have contributed to you know, why they're at to where they're at now. Both Linda and Dr. Tedesco remind and challenge us to look beyond our own biases and stereotypes, and to recognize the complexity and enormity of these structural vulnerabilities. Our next guest, Daniela Mergarten, tells us her own story with low income and precarious housing that reflects these vulnerabilities. Daniela is on the Lived Experience Caucus of the Toronto Alliance to End Homelessness. Welcome, Daniela. I'm sort of going to tell you a bit about my story and I'm 63 now, so it is definitely like a case study. And all the adversity I've had in my life, it's amazing that I can still smile and participate and actually be uh, an advocate for change around poverty, homelessness, and just uh, making sure that people are taken care of. I'll start with, um, which is sort of painful to talk about, is I, uh, we're immigrants from Germany, and we immigrated in 1967. I had a very abusive stepfather, which, you know, there was no, there were no shelters for women. Uh, my mother was beaten, and I was beaten. He was an alcoholic, and it was very stressful for me because I didn't have really a chance to grow up. From six years on, I had to maintain a household, take care of my siblings. There were five. 
And I ended up leaving at 16 because my stepfather took me out of school. He said, you know what, go get a job, see what life is all about. I loved school. It was my safe place. And I was doing well, even with my English handicap. So I got a job as a receptionist in an optical company, and um, he actually then took all my money. I didn't mind giving money to help support the family, but we didn't eat better. We still weren't paying our rent, and that's when I decided to leave at 16, partially for my own safety. The sexual abuse my mother didn't know about, and I, because my mother was beaten, I couldn't talk about it to her. I knew it wasn't right, but I let it happen because I was afraid of him. The worst thing is to see my mother bounced off walls, and at 63, I still have nightmares around that. I came to Toronto. I, I wanted to get out of Kitchener because we're from Kitchener, and I had no, I had nothing. I, I left with a little suitcase, and I had no home. Luckily, I was young and pretty. People were... <laughs> they took me in, and um, I couchsurfed for a number of years until I found a place of my own at 21. I then enrolled in school. I found this apartment. It was $125, a top floor, at 463 Dover Court. And I went to see a doctor because I had a hard time getting up. I had a hard time functioning. And the doctor, without really asking me anything, had said to me, oh, I'd like you to sign yourself into Lakeshore Psychiatric Ward. And I had aspirations to teach. I didn't want to have a psychiatric history. And my boyfriend said, you know what? You're not crazy. You're not going to do that. And I'm really glad. Why, if somebody, if you would have just given me a hug or some kind of kindness or... I can just imagine if I would have done that, I probably would have been medicated. Heaven knows where I would have ended up. And that also made me really afraid to seek out help in terms of psychiatry. Daniela had to uproot her life at a young age and travel to an unknown place to find safety. We asked Daniela what she felt at that time. I actually felt free, which is strange, a strange way of saying that, because the oppression I had at home was not good. It wasn't a happy place. I mean, I had... Every time I left school, my stomach would hurt if I knew my stepfather was home. And, and if I knew he wasn't there, I'd be running home. So to live in such an oppressive situation was not healthy. And I felt free, <laughs> right? And I wasn't afraid. I really wasn't afraid. I, you know, I think when you're young... You don't think about, you just do, right? And uh, I got on a bus and ended up here, and I ended up actually sleeping first time in an apartment building in a lobby, and somebody picked me up. Daniela fought to stay off the streets. She moved many times over the years, with eviction from apartments and rent costs rising too high in Toronto. Daniela told us about many arguments with landlords and cases with the legal system. Throughout all of these experiences, one of the biggest challenges she faced was the loss of community and social supports that came with moving. When I lost my second home on Dover Court, you know, after that two-year fight, I was all over the media. When I lost that, I, luckily the last day, I got, found a place up at St. Clair West and Bathurst. It is 1350. 1350 with mice. <laughs> Okay, and I lost my hood. I cried when I moved the whole, the whole way through, because, um, like I said, I'm I was 61, and my community was my home. It was my family, and the importance of that. And it still hurts. <laughs> you know, I worked in the hood, and I loved my hood. I knew all my neighbors, and I was so happy. Earlier, Daniela told us about her first interaction with the healthcare system. It was with a psychiatrist who made her feel pressured and trapped, and it was not what she needed at that time. Daniela's fear of seeking psychiatric services reminds us of the experiences we heard earlier from Linda and Dr. Tedesco. However, Daniela eventually found a family doctor, Dr. Markin, who went above and beyond to help her get the medication she really needed. 
She told us about the impact he had on her life and could not express enough how kindness and compassion from healthcare providers can be truly transformative. It was like uh, $90 for 60 milligrams. And I had gone to this doctor asking him to write a letter for special consideration that I could get this. And he said to me, you know what? He says, I'm not going to do it. He picks up the phone, phones the pharmacy, and says, put it on my bill. And the kindness of that man at that moment was just immense. He's one of my angels. And Dr. Markins, and he was already like when I in his 70s, was very kind. And then I, because I was in the community, I heard of all the kindnesses he did to other people in the community. And I just want to say that a doctor that really cares can make a whole difference in your life. That man took, <laughs> looked after me for 20 years and was a saint. He always had a joke for me. <laughs> and he was very kind. And uh, I needed that. I really, really needed that, and I admired him and how much that meant to me that a person really cares. The difference a doctor can make in your life, because I have, I didn't even talk about Debbie Honigman. <laughs> Debbie Honigman is my recent doctor who I've had for 20 years. When I went to see her, the first thing she asked me was if I'd ever been sexually abused. And I remember this, this, this wall of heat coming up, and I just said, I can't talk about it, because I couldn't. But she then wrote down um, post-traumatic stress, which got me on ODSP, because I was struggling on welfare. Even when I was going to school, I had $100, and you can't maintain health. Never mind that I didn't eat well as a child, then try to get moved forward and not being able to eat well because you're paying rent and whatever. It's going to catch up with you. She had given me so many tools and how I needed that for my own healing, you know, to be able to move forward. And so I'm very late at 63. You know what I'm saying? If somebody would have helped me earlier on, you know, I I probably would have been more productive. Well, I can't say more productive. I have always been productive. But it wouldn't have been so hard. On top of physicians, there are many other key players in the healthcare system that help with patients' needs, especially those living with homelessness. However, social services proved to be quite challenging to find and navigate for both Linda and Daniela. Daniela explains. You know, I always worked and did things. I, I didn't know about community services. Even though when I was on student welfare going through high school, nobody told me anything. Nobody said, oh, here's a place you can go for food, or here's a place you can go for support. You know, I was always struggling on my own. And the more you do that, the more you hit your head, the harder it is to get up when you fall. An insightful piece Daniela had was the need for consistency in these services. So I had a worker for a year, and, well, I had three workers for a year because they change, and how I find that problematic, too, because, you know, I, being an abuse survivor, I have trust issues, so you develop trust with one person, and then three months later, you get somebody else. It's really, it's, it's an issue, right? Daniela described how important it is for physicians to understand the unique needs of the patient in front of them, beyond simply attending to their medical needs. As an MD, you should familiarize yourself with community services. So as you're treating your patient, you know, also, <laughs> I said, give them time. Give them time, uh, assess them, and, and, you know, like triage. What are their needs? What, what is the most important need? Is it housing? Have some kind of direction for them if they don't have. That's, that's huge. I mean, a lot of people don't have a doctor, but if you have a doctor, that, that can make or break, make all the difference in the world. It could be a first step on a path. I also speak about, you know, more collaboration between services. I worked with a woman for 13 years trying to, like doing case management, trying to get her house. She was using all the freaking services in the, in the city. And do you think anybody was helping her? When I came back from the United Nations, I called a medical conference. I got all those, those services around one table saying, why can't we find this woman a place to live? As Daniela mentioned, there are multiple sectors and organizations that have similar goals to help, but do not traditionally work together. 
how do we bring the sectors together that need to come together for those that have needs that span different sectors, like the disability sector and the health sector and the housing sector? And this is where we saw the multiple C's, the need for collaboration, for communication, uh, the, need, uh, the need to support choice and the need to compromise because we won't be able to achieve everything we set uh, forward to do. You just heard from our next guest, Dr. Vicky Sturgiopoulos. These findings were based on a study she conducted, which found that the key drivers of the success of her efforts were collaboration and communication. Dr. Sturgiopoulos is a clinician scientist and the physician-in-chief at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, or CAMH. She's also an associate scientist at St. Michael's Hospital and a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto. My research has uh, focused on individuals that are homeless and have a mental illness. Uh, We've uh, done studies uh, looking at housing intervention. We've uh, done studies looking at health interventions, especially after they leave hospital. At the moment, we're looking at two interventions. One is to provide recovery supports to people that are homeless and have mental illness. And the other is to look at the role of financial incentives in supporting engagement with uh, services for this population. There are other smaller studies that are happening, but these are the main projects that uh, my team is spending time on at the moment. We asked her how she became inspired to pursue this work. I think um, my first exposure was as a trainee at the old Wellesley Hospital. Um, It no longer exists, but it brought me face to face with social disadvantage and the improvements we need to make to our systems of care to serve those that need us most. And this was reinforced uh, time and again every time I saw a person with mental illness, whether they were called housed or not, because the majority even when housed, had a very suboptimal housing, housing that was not conducive to their recovery. I think the importance of uh, the social determinants of health and the importance of looking at health holistically, uh, looking at the person in front of us and all the other things that are happening in their lives and all the other struggles other than um, specific health issues that we tend to focus on in in healthcare. I think uh, that in a nutshell, is the reason that I do the type of work that I do. Dr. Sergiopoulos is a lead researcher of the at-home Chezwa study, which was recently published in the journal Lancet Psychiatry, which received a lot of media attention. The at-home Chezwa project is the longest-running study of its kind, according to the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The study uses a housing-first approach, and we asked Dr. Sergiopoulos to explain this to us further. Housing First is a newer approach to housing people that uh, are homeless and have a mental illness. The approach uh, views housing as a human right and offers immediate access to housing, uh, usually in the community uh, with help from rent supplements to support their other provincial income support sources, along with evidence-based intensive mental health services. And it's this combination, this coordinated uh, housing and support that seems to uh, be making a difference, uh, both in the short term and in the long term. The Mental Health Commission of Canada, actually on their website, about At Home Cisoi, has a number of interviews with program participants. And I still uh, communicate with some of the participants because they've joined other studies. They wanted to stay connected And uh, what they describe is that the program is life-changing. According to the latest report from the Mental Health Commission of Canada by Dr. Sturgiopoulos' team, traditionally, participants can't access permanent housing without first meeting strict requirements on sobriety and acceptance of psychiatric treatment. This reminds us of Linda's story earlier, as she described how she lost her apartment and was evicted from a house due to her substance use. Housing First is different in that it provides participants with immediate access to housing along with treatment and mental health support services. In 2015, we published work uh, showing uh, that after two years, individuals in in Housing First did a lot better in terms of housing stability and some other outcomes uh, such as community functioning or quality of life. 
compared to those that re- received usual services in the community. Um, uh, we recently published outcomes after six years in Housing First, and and we saw that uh, the housing outcomes continue to be much better for Housing First, especially for those that have higher needs for mental health service support. Uh, that is, our sickest patients, the people that have the more severe conditions, do very poorly in the usual care system, which uh, points not just to the strengths of the Housing First model, but also to invites us to take a look at what is our usual care and how can we do better. The Housing First model spanned across five Canadian cities, Vancouver, Moncton, Winnipeg, Montreal, and Toronto. Housing First participants had been stably housed for 80% of the time compared to 54% among participants who underwent treatment as usual, effectively reducing homelessness. In the spirit of housing as a first-line treatment to health, a radical new partnership was just recently announced in the past few months. It was launched by the University Health Network, or UHN, the largest academic hospital in Canada, along with the United Way of Greater Toronto and the City of Toronto. It's being coined a social medicine initiative and is the first of its kind in Canada, which will dedicate a plot of land worth almost $10 million to co-design and create supportive, affordable housing with community partners. Although housing is an important first step, Dr. Sturgiopoulos tells us that other strategies and social factors are also needed to help reduce homelessness and improve an individual's quality of life. Other than housing, there is a number of things that we can do. Uh, For example, if cognitive impairment is a main issue that stands in the way of people doing their best and achieving their goals, can we um, pair housing with cognitive remediation strategies? Uh, Can we integrate better employment uh, strategies to uh, give people uh, an opportunity to find meaningful work and achieve other life goals? Um, what we hear from them is uh, they just want to be part of the community. They want to give back, and uh, finding ways to facilitate community integration will go a long way to improving quality of life. So uh, we don't have the answers for all of that, but but certainly we know which direction we need to go to to advance the um, evidence base. Over a two-year period, the study found that every $10 invested in Housing First services resulted in an average savings of $15.05 for high-need participants. These savings came from reduced hospitalizations, health provider visits, and emergency department and shelter use. So with this type of evidence, we were wondering about the next steps, especially when it involves policymakers. When it comes to policymakers, the first thing is to let them know that Housing First is a solid investment and it works in the long run just as well as in the short run. The study also poses new research questions. If housing is first, what's next? How can we support other outcomes like quality of life, like recovery, uh, like mental health symptom severity, like employment or education? Outcomes that we haven't seen housing first uh, do be making a big difference Uh, for compared to usual uh, services. So there is room to improve the Housing First model, and there is room to further understand how do we improve outcomes for this population. Along the lines of improving recovery outcomes for this vulnerable population, Dr. Tedesco shared with us her advocacy work as co-chair of HPAP, which stands for Health Providers Against Poverty. It's an alliance of healthcare providers from across disciplines. So that includes um, nurses, physicians, social workers, dietitians, amongst many others. And we're an alliance that was initially kind of based in Toronto, but has since become more of a provincial network of healthcare providers. And since the inception in 2005, there's now two other chapters in Nova Scotia and in Newfoundland as well. There's some small municipal chapters in Peterborough and Hamilton. So we've expanded quite a bit since the inception in 2005. HPAP's main goal is to reduce social and health inequities as healthcare providers Our society allots us with a lot of power and privilege, and we are often very uniquely privileged to hear the stories of our patients and our clients and the struggles that they have facing, you know, structural determinants of health and the social determinants of health. 
And so for a lot of us, we see our roles having a lot of social accountability and that our roles uniquely position us to be able to advocate alongside the patients that we see and to speak to some of the injustices that we witness within our societies. So currently, some of our most recent work was around the federal election. So we kind of had two major projects that we did during the federal election. One was um, vote pop-ups. And so this was done based on some of the work that's done at Ryerson and from Dr. Daniel Raza back around the um, municipal election. But the goal of it was really to reach out to groups who aren't typically represented in the voting process or or who face barriers to participating. And those are populations that are often very affected by the outcomes of elections. The other project that we did was a federal election report card, and we had done something similar for the provincial election. And for that project, we graded and looked at six kind of priority topics that we saw would have significant impacts on populations living in poverty. And we know that there are certain populations that are disproportionately affected by poverty. So those populations that are racialized, those people who are indigenous, for example. And so we looked at things like climate change, like access and affordability, employment, income, indigenous sovereignty, the overdose crisis, with a goal of just really educating voters about the multiple things that play into health and health outcomes. Right now, a lot of the work that we want to do is to build capacity in healthcare providers to engage in advocacy. I think a lot of, I mean, I can speak to my experience as a medical student and a resident. Uh, You feel very motivated to engage in social justice work, but you don't necessarily know how to do it. And I know that kind of is seen in other medical professions. And so giving people tools and the confidence that they have to actually engage in this work, I think, is something that we're kind of uniquely positioned to do and something that I'd like to work towards expanding into the future to just go beyond teaching people about the social determinants of health, but to having conversations about, you know, why are these inequities and how can we as healthcare providers engage in advocacy at more like meso and macro levels. And I think as a, you know, a healthcare provider who works with these populations, you can feel sad and frustrated and angry. But I feel like when you're doing this more upstream work, it helps you to cope with some of those feelings and feel like you're actually doing something about it in a larger level and not just kind of offering a Band-Aid solution. And so I'd advocate for people who care about these issues and want to provide this care to these populations. And everyone really does in some way to perhaps see that as a way to provide comprehensive care to engage in advocacy at upstream levels for those populations beyond just the one-on-one individual clinical care. Tackling these issues at upstream levels for this population is in fact the focus of important research being done here in Toronto. Founded in 2016 by Dr. Andrew Pinto, the Upstream Lab at St. Michael's Hospital was developed to create a space to advance thinking and collaboration in addressing the social determinants of health. I've recently joined the lab and I'm conducting my PhD research as part of this team. If you're interested in learning more, feel free to reach out. The link to the lab website can also be found in the episode show notes and on our website. You've seen the importance of advocacy by physicians and researchers, but equally important is the advocacy and storytelling of people with lived experience. This takes bravery and courage. Now, with a stable living arrangement, Daniela is quite the activist. She has spoken on mayor roundtables and even visited the United Nations. She also works on the Toronto Alliance to End Homelessness, which is a community-based impact initiative working collectively towards achieving and maintaining zero homelessness. Daniela shares one initiative that she spearheaded. I'm on the Alliance to End Homelessness. I'm on their human rights working group. And I've talked to my MPP already about, I want to see the shelter allowance be increased for OWODSP because $499 doesn't even get you a room in the city. I'm just one person, but I know I have a lot of people's ears out there. And that's why I keep doing this. I encourage anybody, you young folks, to go out there, check it out. Um, We do actually have some of your three-year students from the University of Medical team on the human rights. They're awesome people. I really feel that they're listening to the people with the experience, which is us. And we actually did come up with a a working model of calling, uh, we, we called it nothing about us without us, meaning that we have to be at every link. So anything that the Alliance does has to kind of come back to us and we approve it. 
We also asked Linda what her life looks like today and what it was like telling her story for the very first time. This is something new. I'm terrified of speaking. I'm, ter- I'm uh, terrified. I used to be terrified to go out of the house. I would have to take several times before I could get out of the house because I was afraid to be around people, afraid to be around crowds, and afraid to have eye contact with people was very painful. For me to speak, no, I've been nervous for the last three weeks. I, I get terrified, but I, I, want to, um, I want to challenge that terror. I don't want to live in that terror. And I, I want to be able to speak. I, I have a voice today. I'm learning I have a voice, and I want to use it as best as I can to help. Today, I, I've been sober for over a year. I, I do live in that, the group home, the one where I do share a, a bedroom, and it's with women with mental health issues. Some are worse than others in, in the home. I got this place through Habitat for Humanity. I ran the 5K Toronto Marathon in May of this year, which was a milestone for me. I work part-time right now for the TTC. I volunteer in the kitchen at the Salvation Army. I do day programs at the Star Learning Center. I take art classes. I belong to the library. I have a library card, (laughs) which is a big thing for me. I see a psychiatrist two two times a month, which I've learned to adore and to trust. I have gratitude. I have joy. I can smile and feel happiness. Our sincerest thank yous to Linda Bingham and Daniela Murgarten, two incredible, inspiring women who shared their stories with us today. We hope that you take the time to listen to their full interviews on our website at rawtalkpodcast.com. We would like to thank Dr. Alyssa Tedesco and Dr. Vicki Sturgiopoulos for their insightful words and expertise. A full transcript for this episode can also be found on our website. For this episode, Jillian Zainab and myself, Aaron, were your hosts. Content development by Thamia. Kat was our audio engineer and Melissa was our executive editor. Marin and Nathan were our photographers. Thank you for listening and tune in to our next episode on pediatric health. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.